Well, for the second to the last time, I can say turn to the book of Mark. Today and next week are our last two messages in the book of Mark. If you've been, you've been part of Grace for a while, you know that we've been here. If you haven't been uh, part of Grace for a while, you probably think this is the only book of the Bible, right? And so we're in the book of Mark, and we're on week 68. And I, I've just so enjoyed walking slowly with Jesus. I've said that before. But there's just something about taking in his life afresh and anew at such a slow pace and just really looking at each passage and, and really seeing how can we be just like Jesus. And imagine that you were there with him in that first century. Imagine that you were one of his disciples, if not one of the 11, maybe one of the ones that were more on the peripheral that followed him, that were true followers, but maybe not necessarily in the inner circle. Imagine how we finished up last week's sermon, that Jesus was dead. The man that they had followed around for three and a half years, the man who they had seen do incredible things and teach incredible messages, all that he said, all that he did, apparently pointless because he was now had been squashed by the enemy, Rome, humiliated in public, tortured and put to death. And as you took this in, either near the cross or as rumors and, and, and messages and the word spread throughout Jerusalem, what would you have thought? Just another Messiah figure, just another guy who claimed he was somebody, but his words apparently meant nothing, his teaching meant nothing because he's on the cross dead. What does it matter? Let's move on. Let's look for the next Messiah to come, and maybe he'll be the right one to lead the country of Israel from their oppressor Rome. Imagine the feeling that you would have. You know, most historians, if they're honest with the truth, will tell you that Jesus Christ existed. Even the most skeptical of critics of history will tell you Jesus Christ lived. And they will tell you Rome put him to death. But what happened? Why are things different? Why is this not just another Messiah who claimed, made claims but ultimately was tortured and put to death? What was different? Think about it. Here we sit, 2,000 years later, still looking at his life, studying his truth. The impact of Jesus is incredible. It, after his death, it exploded. His popularity exploded. Books written, millions of books written about Jesus Christ. Millions of songs written about Jesus Christ. We divide history between his life when he was born and now. It cut history in half. Something was amazing about this guy. The, the two holidays that are the most popular holidays we celebrate, Christmas and Easter, are about him. His birth and his, his resurrection. See, everything changed because he wasn't just a Jewish carpenter and an itinerant preacher who traveled around telling good messages. And the resurrection proves that. Our faith hinges on the fact that Jesus died to save sinners and proved that he was who he said he was by raising from the dead. He proved that he was more than just a man or more than just a wise rabbi. He was so much more. And so our faith ultimately comes down to the fact that Jesus rose again. And Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. He said, 
If Christ hasn't been risen, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. So if you're here today and you believe in Jesus, but you don't believe in the resurrection, let me tell you, Scripture says your faith is pointless and useless because there's nothing that substantiates what he said if he didn't prove it to be true through his resurrection. So the truth of the resurrection confirms the teaching of Jesus as having authority as he claimed from God. And the empty tomb, the resurrection appearances, and just even the origin of Christian faith and how it started up, all these point to the same amazing conclusion that God raised Jesus from the dead. That God raised Jesus from the dead. And so today, we're going to look at this text, and we're going to look at it from what's called an apologetic form. And don't, don't think that's like I'm apologizing for what it says. That, that's a word that means defending your faith, showing you what the Scripture says and why it's true. And I'm going to show you four proofs today from this passage on why Jesus was who he said he was and why this is not just some made-up story. And next week, we'll look at the fifth one. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 15. And so the first one, we're going to see in verse 42 and 43 that the disciples would not have believed and preached the, the, of Jesus' resurrection if he was still laying there in an empty tomb. Again, disciples would not have believed this, and they would not have preached it if Jesus' body was still there in an empty tomb. It made no sense whatsoever for the disciples to preach a resurrected Jesus if right there in the same city where Jesus was killed and he was put into a tomb that anybody could go there and see, hey, this guy is still there. His body's still there. His corpse is still there. The Romans and the Jewish leaders would have been very, very eager to show that off if it was true. And so the disciples claimed this to be true for a reason. And these details that they provided are amazing. So verse 42, it says, And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, so we're talking about Friday, more than likely Friday sundown, and that would have begun the Sabbath day. And then 43, this man named Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. And let me just say what that means, the council. This was, interesting enough, this was the very council who condemned Jesus to die. The Sanhedrin, here this guy Joseph, was a member, an elite group. Only 70 people were part of this Sanhedrin body, this ruling body of Israel. And one of these guys, Joseph of Arimathea, he's a respected member, and he actually comes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. And, and so people who question the resurrection, how can you explain the fact that the early disciples of Jesus would make up a burial story citing a member of the very group that put Jesus to death? It would make no sense whatsoever they would randomly pick this guy who was part of the Sanhedrin and make it him coming to offer the tomb for Jesus. That would be the last person that you would uh, come up with and choose to fabricate the story about Jesus raising from the dead. And, and naming the fact that this guy was Joseph of Arimathea, they gave the location of this tomb where it existed. So everyone could go and verify, was Jesus' body there or was it not? And Luke's gospel tells us that Joseph, even though he was part of the Sanhedrin, he did not agree with the verdict, obviously. He did not agree with the verdict against Jesus. And so back to our text in verse 43, um, he, he himself, it says, was looking for the kingdom of God. That implies that he was a follower of Jesus. And he took courage and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, when people died on the cross, typically they would be left hanging for several days. 
uh, they would be there for the vultures and the wild animals to eat. Because remember why Rome put people to death on a cross? They wanted it to be a public spectacle. They wanted everyone to see this is what happens when you rebel and go against Rome. And Jewish historian Josephus, who wasn't a believer in Jesus, noted that in Palestine, the Jews gave even criminals some type of burial before sundown. And that was probably because of what Deuteronomy says, that um, it condemned the Jewish people for not burying someone if they hung on a tree before sundown. It tells them to take their body and put it, put it in a grave. And so why would the disciples claim that Jesus had raised from the dead if that grave was right there and it could be examined by anyone? The second thing, which seems really like for those of us who are churchy and we've been around for a while, this seems like a really duh point here, but Jesus was really dead. And I think it's important to bring this out in the text because many people throughout history have tried to say, okay, all right, so Jesus did make these appearances in front of real people who wrote and recorded this information, so therefore Jesus must have not really been dead because you don't see dead people walking around, do you? And so the, the account for post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, some throughout history tried to say, well, he didn't really die on the cross. Well, look at verse 44 and 45. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, the Roman guard, uh, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And so death on the cross, I mentioned last week, ultimately came usually by asphyxiation or heart failure. All right, And so if the executioner wanted to speed up this process and make the person die quicker, they would break the person's leg with some kind of club. And that would cause them to die very soon after that. Well, the Jewish leaders, they didn't want Jesus and the others to still be on the cross when the Sabbath day began at 6 o'clock that evening on a Friday night. And so the executioner was prepared to break Jesus' leg. We learned this from the other gospel accounts. But he appeared to be already dead. And John tells us that in order to make sure Jesus was dead, the executioner took his spear and thrust it into Jesus' side, piercing his heart and his lung. And so if Jesus wasn't already dead, he was dead for sure at this point. He would not have been able to live through this. And then the professional executioner, the centurion, he reports to Pilate and says, he's dead, all right? So he's dead. So we got a couple proofs here, all right? A, a tomb where everybody knew whose tomb this was, Joseph of Arimathea, could have gone and examined, could have seen that his corpse wasn't there. And then we know that Jesus actually ended up there because Jesus was really dead as attested by the centurion guard himself. And then the next one, which many people may not have realized is such a validation, the fact that Jesus really did raise again from the dead, is found in verse 40. Go back to verse 40. We're going to go back and pick up a couple of verses. Is the fact that women discovered the empty tomb. Women discovered the empty tomb. Let's go ahead and set this in context in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance. This is when Jesus is still on the cross, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And so we learn from the Gospel of Matthew that Salome, she's the mother of James and John, the disciples, the sons of Zebedee. And verse 41, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So these are actual people, actual names, people who were watching, howbeit from a distance, watching Jesus die upon the cross. 
These were people who ministered to Jesus, and Jesus ministered to them, were integral parts of his ministry. And then turn over to chapter 16, verse 1, and it says, When the Sabbath had passed, so this is after Jesus had been put into the tomb, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And so they're going on the very early Sunday morning. The Sabbath's over. They're going there to anoint the body with spices. They're trying to determine how are we going to get in there to do this. And, you know, it, I, said, I started this out by saying women were the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. Why is that important? It's important because during that time period, female testimony had little value, really. Women at that time were not regarded as credible witnesses. And so these women who were well-known in the early church, they could have also been questioned by those who doubted or had questions about, is this really happened? Was his body really gone? They could go to these people and actually talk to them. But it's so interesting to me that if the Gospels and if the Gospel writers had wanted to deceive people and Jesus really wasn't alive, why in the world would they have made their most credible witnesses, the first people on the scene, if you're in law enforcement or know anything about law enforcement, you got the first eyewitness account, you got those who were there before the uh, crime scene, so to speak, had been interrupted and messed up. These were the first eyewitnesses. Why would the gospel writers have put this into the account if they knew that they weren't respected as credible witnesses for this fact? Why? Because it's true. Because they put the truth in when they could have easily changed the story and made Peter or somebody else show up at the tomb and been the first eyewitnesses. So they're the main witnesses, and it adds credibility to the account. Verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The language here in this verse is clearly describing an angel. In fact, Luke says that this man had shining garments. So it was obvious this was a supernatural being, an angel from heaven. And if you know your Bible very well, you know that anytime anyone encounters an angel, the result is always terror. They're, they're frightened to come into the presence of a supernatural being from the supernatural realm. And so obviously, verse 6, that they're, 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 they're alarmed, they're scared, and he says to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Come and look. Come and see the place where they laid him. The greatest announcement in all of history. He is risen. Wow. He is risen. And, and, and the bad thing is, this should not have been a shock to anyone. Because countless times in the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus try to teach his disciples and those who followed him that he would suffer and be killed and he would rise again on the third day. But they thought that he was talking in a riddle or that, you know, there's some twist to this. This wasn't actual or literal because they could not see in their minds how Messiah could be tortured and put to death and killed. So Jesus, the one who taught with great authority, the one who even the winds 
and the waves obeyed him. Who had the authority over Satan, over demons, who could heal the sick and raise the dead. He proved he was who he said he was, and he did what he said he was going to do. And then the angels told the the women, but go, tell his disciples. And Peter, remember this is Peter's account of more than likely of of Jesus' life. Go tell the disciples. And Peter, that he, that Jesus is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. You know, would any of you really been shocked at this point if Jesus, or if the angel, I'm sorry, had told the women, hey, I want you to go and you tell those faithless, backstabbing, weak, sissy disciples. Tell them that I've raised from the dead, just like I told them I would many times. And if they're willing to come and beg me enough, I'll, I, I might accept them back and I might take them back. But that didn't happen, did it? We see Jesus saying, I'm going to go where I promised you I would go. I'm going to head to to Galilee, and I'm going to see you there, and I want you back. I want you back. You know the patience, right? Not just for the disciples, but for us. I mean, how many times do we catch ourselves doubting God's greatness, His mercy, His grace? How many times do we think about situations, our current events, and we only see them through our lens, and it makes us angry, or it makes us think, you know, I, we got to take control. we got to do something here. And God's saying, what? I told you I'm in control. I put kings and leaders in place. I orchestrate things. Sure, we have a, point in, a place in this, and God calls us to minister and serve and make a difference. But we doubt God, and we put priorities above God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we fail God and we make, make excuses for it time and time again. Well, I deserve that. Or I'm entitled to that. Or God, you would have made me that way if I didn't have that desire or that impulse. And we constantly deny Christ in our actions. And some of us even in our words. But again and again, if we're God's children, he says, I want you. You're mine. I'm waiting for you to come back to me. And God, through Christ, always takes us back. He doesn't go anywhere. We're the ones that wander away. We're the ones that run after our passions, our desires. And the same is true for Jesus. Even after Peter's colossal failure, the treachery, just the betrayal that he he did in Jesus, I I want you to go tell Peter, I'm going before you to Galilee, just like I told him I would. And then the fourth thing, when it, and, we'll, and this, we'll get more into this next week, is the fact that on multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups saw Jesus alive after his death. Go tell the disciples, go tell Peter, but it's, it's way more than the disciples, and it's way more than Peter. In fact, Paul gives a long list in Corinthians of the people who personally saw the risen Savior, Jesus, and he notes that most of these people are still alive. He, he gives names, and he says, go, go talk to them. Go interview them. Go see that this is true. We're not making this up. In fact, Paul alludes to over 500 witnesses, and Jesus made seven appearances that are on record in the Gospels after his resurrection. In Acts 1 
3 through 4 tells us that for 40 days Jesus appeared constantly to numerous people throughout the area there. Did all of these eyewitnesses have hallucinations? Did they all think they saw Jesus but it wasn't Jesus? You see, in everything else in life, just probably one or two pieces of that evidence would be convincing. And these are just a, a handful that I've selected. I could go to more, even more than these. But thing after thing after thing, historically, just line up. And it just shows you that the resurrection is a historical truth that exists. And then verse 8. It says, and they went out after, obviously, they're going to go tell Peter and the disciples, but they went out and fled the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And so they didn't, on the way to see Peter and the disciples, it says they just made a beeline to see those guys. They didn't tell anybody else because of the shock they were in, the joy they were experiencing, the hope, the astonishment of the situation. And so actual people saw the actual empty tomb. Others saw Jesus, hundreds saw Jesus alive. And they went and they told the disciples. They went and told Peter. And next week we'll pick up the final one of these proofs is the fact that these scared-to-death disciples turned the world upside down, and you are sitting in a church in Bainbridge, Georgia, in the year 2020 because they believed what happened, and they saw the risen Jesus. You realize that? You're where you're at because of their message, their passion, their energy for not a dead Savior who was in a tomb somewhere, but for a man who they saw his amazing life they experienced his tragic death and they saw his resurrected self and followed him with a passion they never had before. Awesome and amazing. Let me finish out with one verse. This last week I was talking to a guy and really just sharing with him the gospel and he just said, you know, I just don't think about this kind of stuff. I just don't think about it anymore. You know, I, I grew up with some Christian background, but I just don't let my mind go there. I was like, well, you got to go there. You got to think about it because life and death for eternity hinge upon this. In fact, Acts 17, 31, when the apostles were giving the, the gospel, the message, it says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he had appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all. Why? How? By raising him from the dead. So God has fixed a time to judge everyone. We must all stand before God and give an account for what we did with Jesus Christ. And it's not enough to push that off to one day I'll deal with that. Or one day I'll think those serious things. Right now I'm just enjoying being alive and I'm enjoying life. But we have to force ourselves because this is what matters. And our little lives compared to all eternity are so small and they pass so quickly. I'm going to leave you before the interview time with a, uh, a quote from 17th century physicist named Blaise Pascal. He said this, he said, In faith there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. Let me read that one more time. In faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those 
who don't. I can lay out all the evidence in the world. But the truth is, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And God gives faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Grace is a gift of God. And so how should you respond? Well, if you claim to be a Christian, allow the truth of the resurrection to change the way that you live your life. Because it matters. And if we have our 70 and 80 years on this earth and we get from it all that we want and we die and we stand before God and we say, I I trusted Jesus but we did nothing with his message, with the, the greatest information that could ever be given. Man, we'll look back on our life and think, whoa, what a wasted life that was. And for those who have never really truly made a firm like decision to, to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, to trust his sacrifice for your sins and put your faith in him, you know, it's going to be a, a scary day to stand and give an account and, and, and stand before the, God as the judge and say, you know, just really didn't believe God. And God will say, depart from me. I never knew you. It's a humbling and grave thing to think about, isn't it? The truth is there. Are we going to focus on the shadows, or are we going to focus on the light? I've asked Dallas Burke to join me today, and I've really enjoyed these interview times over the last couple months when good thing that has come out of all the stuff that we've done. And Dallas, I, I bring him up here not because he's an awesome guitar player, which he is, but I, I invite him to come up here because this guy has a doctorate. He didn't want me to say all this stuff, but he has a doctorate from University of Georgia. He um, is, an, is an amazing intellect, reads, studies, um, just really is knowledgeable and a uh, pretty well-known composer in certain realms, uh, band music, right? Um, uh, music that uh, most of us probably don't listen to on a regular basis, but compose that stuff. And also, the picture up there, you were Teacher of the Year in Seminole County, 2019-20, right? Right, that's right. Congratulations, yeah. Thank you. So let me ask you, a guy who thinks a lot, he's very intellectual, and I know when, when your mom's spending time with her that like her IQ was like off the charts, and so I'm sure you inherited some of that DNA. That those Not genes. enough. <laughs> so let me ask you, what caused you to embrace faith? Because I knew that you weren't born into a Christian home. What, what causes you to embrace faith in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior? Uh, well, first, growing up, I didn't grow up in church, but um, I, I'd always possessed uh, a feeling like there was something more out there than what we could just see. And so when I was in middle school, I started kind of searching for things. And my mom took me to the library all the time when I went to see her in, in Tallahassee and had a great big, huge store. And somehow I made it to the, uh, the, the section that had all the ghost stories. So I started looking at ghost stories and, and you know, not really knowing at the time, but looking more towards like occult kind of stuff. And, um, and I just felt like the, uh, still was something was missing. And then uh, late in middle school, I got invited to a youth group. I thought, okay, that sounds cool. I could close enough, I could walk to the church, and uh, and I started being introduced to God slowly, and uh, it, w- it was perfect. But I-, I knew I was in the right place when on our first uh, 
trip, youth trip that I ever went on, um, we went to Panacea to this little uh, cabin there, and the first thing we did the first night was we watched Star Wars. <laughs> and for me, that was like, we're watching Star Wars, and this is church. And so the whole point was to discuss what was similar and what was different between the Force and Christianity. Um, and so that that's like, whoa, okay, there's something more to this. Um, so I just kept learning more and more for years, or over the years, and, and I moved to a different town and, and started going to new churches. And um, But what really grabbed me was the more I read, the more I saw what I was reading was being mirrored in society. In other words, what the Bible was saying about human behavior and, and how things in the world went, I saw it being said, predicted, uh, explained in the Bible that I never found anywhere else. So um, that's really what uh, draw me in. And so as you've continued to, to learn more about faith, I know you, you studied apologetics and so many arguments for and against Christianity, what, what maintains your faith? What, what keeps you rooted in Jesus? And we see in the news, just even this last week, I mean, we got Christian band members abandoning the faith. We had pastor who was uh, in some of the very circles that, that I follow abandoned the faith recently. Why does your faith hold solid? Why do you continue just to trust Jesus above everything else? Well, it's, uh, it might be a weird answer for some people, but it's science and it's nature. And people think that's not... Christian, there's no overlap there. Those are completely different things. But to me, if the Bible is right, then the things that it says should be echoed in science. Now, we have a lot of scientists who use their interpretation to say that it's not. But if you really look at findings, things that people come up with, there's a lot they're saying there that echoes uh, historically and uh, physically and metaphysically and you know, all sorts of different ways. Um, where the Bible says it's 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 going on in in in, uh, in studies these studies, um, and also there's things I see like human nature. You know we've seen a lot of bad human nature lately, and we've also seen some good human nature. You know we have riots one night and people tearing things apart and destroying things, and the next day you also see people taking the time to go help out these communities to clean up and uh, do great things to try to restore things back to the way they were, despite the evil. So in, in life, we have good and we have evil, and people are like, well, you know, what? how do we have this? Well, we were created in God's image. We, we have this, uh, our, our, our template for our, our bodies and our minds and our lives and our souls is to is one focused on God and to spend with God and to work and to want to be in His glory. At the same time, we became sinners when Adam and Eve uh, fell and uh, in the Garden of Eden, and so now we are permanently we are permanently sinful people. You know, uh, it, it's, this is a theoretical, but it seems like when that we had like a perfect DNA when we were made by by God. And then when we ate of the fruit of the tree, it altered our DNA. So that's how we carry sin with us down all, all these uh, generations, because we, we all have that DNA from, from the fallen people. So th this, this DNA causes us to fight against what is good and what is right and what we know to be right. And so that, that's, that explains to me why we have the capability as humans to do such great, wonderful 
incredible things for people, but also to do such depraved evil things. It's, this, it's these two things that are inside of us that we are fighting against. And when we give our lives to Jesus, we are saying we, we, we're rejecting uh, the side that wants destruction and hate and evil in favor of how God intended us to be. Yeah, that's, that's great. a great explanation. Thank you so much for Dallas. And if you ever want to talk to this guy and really even go deeper on stuff, I mean, this guy is a wealth of information and knowledge. I just want to finish with one quick story. Uh, there was a, a lady that her son was in my youth group back in Texas, and she was a very intellectual person. I mean, these people, they were, like, he was in high school building solar cars. I mean, they, these, they were way ahead of their time, very smart people. But she said she wanted to keep getting all this information about God, more information, more information. And finally, she just, like, came to the end of herself because she could not, like, take that next step of faith. And all of a sudden, she realized, I, I've just got to embrace Jesus. And she said once she just kind of, like, okay, I've done all I can do intellectually, now I just got, I have to believe. And it, it, it changed her life. It changed her family's life. It, it altered the, the generation after generation because of her decision to put her faith in Jesus Christ. Now, all along, we know Jesus was chasing after her. But she came to the point where she knew she needed more than just intellectual information. And so I want to encourage anybody who's watching, anybody in the room, maybe that's the case, place you're in. You're just, I need more. I need more. I need to figure this thing out. I need to know. But you're going to come to the end of yourself. And the word has the power to take this and make it, this faith be real and make this thing come to life and be a real relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. Because he's real. He's a per person. He walked, lived on this earth, and he changes everything. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, and we thank you for just these 68 weeks so far of looking at the life of Jesus Christ. And what an amazing life it was, but again, without the resurrection, it would have been meaningless. And God, may our lives be altered and changed like the disciples. May we just have passion about life and about our ministries and our calling because of what you did and showed us that you were who you said you were. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.